Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Busy in the screening room this week, and that makes perfect sense for this time of year. Welcome. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and we are getting even more legit than usual. We've got a sponsor. What? Yes. We've got to say thank you to the Marcus Crosswoods Theater, the new sponsor of the Screening Room, featuring the 70-feet-wide ultra screen with Dolby Atmos surround sound and those dream lounger recliners. So thank you to Marcus Crosswoods Theater, the new sponsor. We appreciate that. Let's jump right in. One of the big new releases this yeah, week. Yeah, you know what's going to look good on a 70-foot wide screen, George? What would that be? That movie you're about to talk about. <laughs> it's the new Thor, the third installment in the standalone Thor movies, and it's Thor Ragnarok. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. Asgard is dead. And it'll be reborn in my image. I thought you'd be glad to see me. We need to stop her here and now to prevent Ragnarok, the end of everything. So they're putting together a team. Like the old days. I'm not a queen or a monster. I'm the goddess of death. You know, one thing about this movie that we thought of immediately when we saw it was the reaction you're going to get because it's an entertaining movie, but both of us were extremely surprised about how comedic it is. It's a full-on comedy. I mean, far more than it is anything else. You would call it a comedy before you called it an action film, before you even called it a superhero movie. It is a comedy, full-blown. It really is, and there, there's no need getting too far into the plot. Let's suffice to say that Thor has to team up with a, a team, including the Hulk, and including Loki, and all these other people, and things happen on different planets, but it's a fight against Hela the goddess of death for the future of the planet of Asgard and the future of humanity and all that stuff. And uh, Hela is played with scene-chewing gloriousness by Kate Blanchett. Who is, uh, you know, it's funny. The first time I realized that she was the villain, I thought, all in. I am yeah. all in. it. Why hasn't anybody have her play I mean, how a can... super villain in the past? Because yeah. she's, she's perfect no matter what she does. Yeah, how can you and not be all in? And here she's just this goth goddess. Oh, my God, she's yeah. so great. Instantly changing into different black clothing oh, and yeah, headgear. Yeah. Just all she has to do is wipe some, wipe her hands across her forehead. And, ooh, she's got this really new cool antler spouting <laughs> headdress type of thing. But yeah, all that aside, it's a Thor movie. It's a superhero movie. You know, these things are going to have it. You, you've got a, a great supporting turn by Jeff Goldblum, yes. basically playing Jeff Goldblum. Right, right, right. And that adds even more comedic, you know, a comedic nature to the movie. But that's the main thing here. When you're going to one of these movies, how much comedy is too much? How much spoils it for, and I'm not talking about maybe just for us, but for a certain segment of the audience for these movies, I think they're not going to dig it. Yeah, I think that there's a chance. You know, I mean, uh, there's no there's no denying that this is an entertaining film, but it's basically adorable is what it is, which is funny. So it's directed by Taika Waititi, who is a New Zealand director and very much so. There's, you know, there's a certain brand of New Zealand comedy that, you know, Flight of the Concords has it. And very his, droll, very cheeky, silly. Yeah. Fun and his he directed What We Do in the Shadows, which we loved. He also directed uh, Hunt for the Wilder People last year, which was just great. And from the opening scene, this movie is all manner of Taika Waititi film, all yeah. manner, which is really really fun. And I enjoy his films very much. But you have to ask yourself, like, 
I mean, the new Spider-Man film was was funny. Of course, the Guardians of the Galaxy films are funny, but the comedy is is almost always in service still to the sort of hugely dramatic world ending, save the world kind of business at hand. Right. Whereas in this case, the comedy just serves more comedy and everything else is just a vehicle for laughs as opposed to the laughs being a way to keep the the very dramatic tension entertaining. Yeah, because sometimes it's a matter of what does that humor come at the expense of. Exactly. Now, you mentioned the Spider-Man, the latest Spider-Man movie. I loved the humor in that because it seemed perfect for a movie that was finally based around the young age of Peter Parker. Right, right, right. It had a worldview very in keeping with a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And the humor came from that. I thought the tone was perfect and didn't come at the expense, really, of anything in the movie. Same for the most part, I think Guardians of the Galaxy serves that as well. Now, when you get into a movie like uh, maybe Doctor Strange or the last Avengers movie... Even some people point to Ant-Man, although I don't think so. I don't think that the humor was as much of a problem in that. People start to point at, at moments where it comes at the expense of the drama, the action, of moving the story along. And there are some, there are some definite moments here in Thor. I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm thinking of one in particular where it kind of builds to a dramatic moment. And then there's that moment, and instead of getting a dramatic payoff... You get a joke. Yeah. And so it undercuts that. And here's what I'm curious about. So I don't feel as if had had this kind of approach been taken with a Spider-Man film, certainly a, a Batman, right? A Superman, like one of the one of the high ticket items. I think it would have met with a lot more criticism. But maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think Thor is one of those superhero franchise films that has that same kind of just iconic staying power or or passion around it. Certainly not that you get like a Superman or a Batman or a Spider-Man. Yeah. And so I feel, and I also think of the Avengers standalone films, I think the Thor films are the weakest. Mm-hmm. I enjoy them. I find them enjoyable. But I think they're also a lot more throwaways. If you take something like Captain America films. Now, they had a tone from Captain America from the opening film yeah. that so perfectly suited that character. And there is humor in all those films, but it's never, ever... Anything but in service of the larger, very patriotic, very wholesome kind of tone that they're going for. So, and it has I much more. You just get you can get away with it more with with Thor than you can with some of the other Avengers. Yeah, I think Captain America. Those are I think my favorites. They have much more of a social commentary, political commentary yes. type of mindset, and that is the the tone of that character. I agree. You know, the Thor movies from the beginning have had a little bit of this this cheekiness to them. When you think back to that very first one and they had fun with him being a fish out of water on sure. earth, you know, mm-hmm. but this one takes it up a notch. It really kicks it up a notch with that. You mentioned the New Zealand humor and the director actually voices one of the characters. A very who's funny character. Very, very, funny, very funny, very funny. So it's, it is interesting. Obviously I think it's going to make a ton of money, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to get some mixed reaction from the, the audiences. Um, I did enjoy it. I didn't love it. I enjoyed it. It's entertaining. They have some really nice set pieces and spectacles, and they do some great things with this song. Because that song is just perfect. How you hear, have they not been using that song the whole time? You hear that song and think, yeah, I'm going to ride in and charge it and you know, right. get into a Hammer battle. So of the gods. Exactly. It's perfect for <laughs> Thor. So they do have some, some nice visuals there, not throughout the entire movie, but some certain set pieces. So a lot of it works. But again, I don't think it's one that really, for me, jumps to the, the top of the list 
as far as the Mar- Marvel movies go. No, definitely not. On the other hand, I don't want to sell it short because I laughed out loud many times. I thought Jeff Goldblum was a stitch, and there are a couple. There are a couple moments, uh, yeah, where I was I was really really laughing hard. I enjoyed every minute of. Except here's the thing, as you know, we've talked about this. Hulk has a great deal of dialogue, and I cannot. I can't get behind it. I'm not saying the dialogue, it was funny. It was funny. But he shouldn't be talking. Yeah, I kind of agree. They come up with a reason why you can kind of see maybe in the course of the narrative that it might work. But I agree with you. I'm not a... I'm not a fan of that. So I was entertained. It was fun, but really nothing much beyond that. Right. And I'm going to be interested to see the reaction by not just the, the casual, I want to see the, the latest big movie uh, audience, but the, you know, the fanboy, the mm-hmm. fanboy audience. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be interested because I think it might be a bit of a mixed bag. There's so much humor in it. And that is Thor Ragnarok. Next up, another sequel hitting the theaters. It's the latest from the Bad Moms. They're back for the holidays. It's a Bad Moms Christmas. But do you know the secret behind what makes Christmas so special? Moms. Moms working their asses off. Cooking, wrapping, decorating, and shopping. I feel like a giant stress ball from, like, November to New Year's. Yeah. I spent months picking out the perfect present for everyone. You know the only thing I get in return? Coupons for free back rubs. That's not okay. Bad back rubs. Huh? Mom? (laughs) Hi, Mom. Where's your tree? I didn't want to waste time Christmas tree shopping. I actually just wanted to enjoy Christmas this year. Amy, you are a mom. Moms don't enjoy, they give joy. That's how being a mom works. It's a bad movie is what it is. It is a bad movie. Now, the first one, even though we didn't like it hardly as much as... A lot of people did. And of I course, disliked it a great deal. And of course, it made serious, serious money. Too much. Which is one of the reasons why it's getting this sequel. But at least it had some laughs to it. It did. Mainly based on the talent of the three leads. Because regardless of how weak the script is, the three leads, particularly Kristen Bell and... Catherine Hahn. Catherine Hahn. Are, they're very funny. Yeah, everybody's back, along with Mila Kunis, who's also a, a, one of the producers. And yeah, they're very talented, and this time they have each of their moms. That's the whole, the whole premise here, because it's the holidays, and the women, the mothers feel that they, the holidays are just about them feeling overworked and underappreciated. So they make a pact to just chill this Christmas and take it easy. Not going to do that overworked thing and not worry about it. Well, as soon as they make that pact, they all get visits from their respective mothers and again more talent you've got susan sarandon christine baranski and cheryl hines and they're the other three that's so, a great deal of talent so exactly six six talented ladies here but the writer directors are back from the first one it's uh, john lucas and scott moore and they did among other things the hangover trilogy and say what you want about hangover two and three i'll say they're bad movies hangover one is still i think one of the funniest movies ever made No, it is it's very very good it's clever it's raunchy in the right way and that's what I think they try to do with these films. But the truth is, they try too hard to write from the perspective of women, and it is offensive. That's the thing. It's come. The humor comes off as very condescending, very obvious. Some of the gags are just so telegraphed and so sophomoric and so worthy of sitcoms. And and then the other gags are based around basically two things: women talking dirty and little kids dropping f bombs. And that's incredibly lazy. It can be funny, but sure. not but not when the only reason it's supposed to be funny is because who is saying these lines? And trying too hard is exactly right. There's a Mila Kunis has a teenage daughter in this in this film, and they show some scenes inside her bedroom. And if you look around, her bedroom is decorated with, I don't know, six or seven banners that say, I love soccer. 
You're not trying team. a little right, too exactly. hard to just look. She's a typical American teenager. The same thing carries over to the entire movie. These two guys are trying way too hard to prove that they can write funny women. And I think more condescendingly that they know what fulfills women as mothers and daughters. I think that's why I hate them. <laughs> because a lot of the movie then, as, as it moves along, there's friction, there's conflict between all the mothers and the daughters. But then, of course, everybody's going to learn something today and they're going to lead toward a reconciliation and a bonding. And That's easy, easy and false. Easy and, and false lazy. and so forced. And I think this... You know, it's probably still going to make a bunch of money. And, you know, if groups of women get together and go out and have a great night, God bless you. You know, let me tell you, here's the difference between the timing of Bad Moms and Bad Moms Christmas is that for my money, ladies, go see Thor. Who doesn't (laughs) want to see Thor? And I think uh, a Bad Moms Christmas for me is one of the worst movies I've seen so far this year. It is just so lazy and forced. And an incredible disappointment. We didn't love the first one, but this one is much, much worse. Next up in the screening room, not a sequel. What's going on here? What? A behind-the-scenes look at the life of author A.A. A. Milne and the creation of the Winnie the Pooh stories inspired by his son, C.R. Milne. It's goodbye, Christopher Robin. Once upon a time, there was a great war that brought so much sadness to so many people. Hardly anyone could remember what happiness was like. But something happened that changed all that. He's your favorite. I'd have to go for the little one. Piglet. Has to be Piglet. Are you writing a book? I thought we were just having fun. We're writing a book and we're having fun. And then, just like a tap you turned on, happiness came pouring out. Much like we just saw a few weeks ago with the story behind the creation of Wonder Woman, this is kind of the same deal, except... A little less ribald. Yeah, a little less kinky. (laughs) Uh, This is getting behind the story of Winnie the Pooh, and it's directed by Simon Curtis, and we've we've liked his work before. He did uh, Woman in Gold. He did My Week with Marilyn a few years ago. Mm -hmm. That was was definitely a decent movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This one here is... You know, it has all the parts. It's very workmanlike. The cast is very good. Everything is put together well, but it's... It's always endearing, but it is never quite memorable. Mm -hmm. It can't make that next step because there is an interesting story to be told here. And, of course, Winnie the Pooh has gone, well, it's a a cultural. I love Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, touchstone. I love Pooh. I love Eeyore. I'm a very big fan of Eeyore's. You know, that that is is still thriving today, obviously. So finding out for a lot of people, myself included, this is going to be things you you didn't know about how it came Mm -hmm. to be. And, again, it's not a documentary, so it may not have every little detail right, but I think we've talked about that before. That's totally fine. This is a narrative movie. But it, it tries to juggle too many themes. I mean, it starts out with A.A. A. Milne coming back from World War One, mm-hmm. where he had some, some time on the front, and he's affected by that. And he wants to, he had been a playwright, kind of some light entertainment. He wanted to move away from that and really write something serious that would communicate the folly and the horror of war for the general population. So Winnie the Pooh then? <laughs> well, it, it got <laughs> to that because he took his family. His wife is played by Margot Robbie. And uh, young Christopher Robin is uh, uh, the debut of an impossibly cute kid and his impossibly <laughs> deep dimples oh. named Wills Tilston. And uh, so they move off from the hustle and bustle of London to the English countryside. And he wants to just take things a little more quieter and, and get inspired to write this book. 
about the horrors of war. And he just has writer's block, and it leads to young Christopher Robin asking him to write a story for him. And then it's inspired by all his stuffed animals, and he's named some of them Piglet. And, and it's a whole you know zoo of these, these uh, stuffed animals. So while battling writer's block, A.A. Milne writes a story about this fantasy world involving his son. And they call him Christopher Robin because this family is very big on nicknames. No, <laughs> no one hardly goes by their real name. Right. In fact, young, the young boy calls his dad Blue. Uh, and they call young Christopher Robin Billy Moon. So, uh, you know, they, they're kind of saying, all right, we're going to give you his name, but that's not really your name. So it's a fictional character. So, And as we all know, the story went on to be incredibly popular and got them extravagant wealth. It also, it also got them intrusive fame. And so then the family, most specifically the boy, has to deal with, well, why do I have to share my life mm -hmm. with all these people? I thought you were writing this book for me, not about me. So there's lots of themes going on there, but it just skirts every one. It never, you know, all the flashback scenes to... A.A. Milne's trouble with his memories of war, yeah, yeah. They're, they're very sanitized. They feel like he just stops to have a dizzy spell. They don't really, there's no meaning behind them. It, it has other kind of fly-by takes on parenting and on celebrity and that oh-so-British stiff upper lip. Everything is just kind of skirted. You never get really under the surface and dig deep enough to make it, to have it leave a, a, a great mark. Um, there's, all the cast is solid. Kelly McDonald plays... Now, uh, the nanny, whose name is Olive, but of course they call her New. And uh, Dom Hall Gleason plays Milne. Dom Hall Gleason plays Milne. Love him all the time. Yes. The cast is solid all the way through. There's nothing wrong with the execution. It just doesn't dig deep enough to really make it memorable. But it's certainly endearing and often charming, and that's goodbye, Christopher Robin. And next up is a film we've been looking forward to. Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. It's the killing of a sacred deer. Because we got the fire, fire, Don't be scared, Mom. Yeah, we You'll see. Fire, you won't be able to move either. But you'll get used to it. Where is she? What did you do to her? We're gonna let it burn, burn, burn. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price. Why my children should have to pay the price. It's the only thing I can think of as close to justice. We can light it up, up, up. So they can put it out, out, out. And we've been looking forward to this one, mainly because of the director, the writer-director, Yorgos Lanthimos, who did The Lobster couple of years ago. Was that just last year? A couple of years ago. It was two years ago. ago and then Dogtooth before that. Yeah, and, yeah, Lobster, one of my favorite movies of a couple of years ago. Loved it, loved it, loved it. This one is a lot harder to pin down, but no less effective. I love this movie. Love it too. And it's a great cast. So Colin Farrell returns, who of course shouldered the lead in Lobster. And he seems weirdly well suited to Lanthimos's detached dialogue and and just weird worlds, you know? And here he plays a surgeon who has kind of the strangely perfect family, his wife, played by Nicole Kidman. And he's got two just absolutely beautiful kids, uh, adolescent, pre-adolescent children. And this gorgeous, very sterile, very chilly home. And it's all sort of comes crashing down around him when this not very attractive, not very perfect, kind of slovenly, kind of weird kid 
weasels his way into their life. And it's uh, in, in the way that it looks and the score and the framing and the way the camera moves, very, very, very Kubrick, it which is. is never a bad idea. Yeah, we should say the boy character, his name is Martin, is played by Barry Keehan. He was seen uh, just earlier this year, very good in Dunkirk. Yes, he was so and good in Dunkirk. And he's great in this movie. Oh my he's, God, he's perfect. He is such an unsettling character who is so... So friendly at first, and then you just kind of know from the beginning there's something off here, and then you start to realize you get you get told more information in bits and pieces, mm-hmm. and you realize what's going on here and why he is insistent on weaseling his way into the family, and it starts to lead to some very very interesting life or death choices that uh, this family has to make, and it's a movie that is. The humor is so much darker than it was in The Lobster. The oh, Lobster yeah. was funny in a biting way, mm-hmm. but you could easily, well, more easily tell where he was going, where the film was going. This one, the humor, when it comes, is so dark. It is. And it leads itself open to so much interpretation about what is being said here. There's there's God complexes. Mm-hmm. There's religion in general. Mm-hmm. There's... There's uh, the failure of people to take accountability for their actions. And there's others that maybe could come to you or me or our neighbor that sure. we didn't think of. Sure, the dissection of the nuclear family and, yeah. and the ludicrous notion of cosmic justice. Yeah. And I mean, so many things. And uh, the execution, the performances, every performance in the film, every line in the film is just impeccable. Yeah, and it's it's a weird combination of a horror movie mm. and a dark, dark comedy. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's it's so hard sometimes to pinpoint just when he's moving from a horrific image to a darkly comic image, mm-hmm. and it's it's just mesmerizing. It is. It, I think that's a great word for it. I think the whole film is mesmerizing, and there are so many ways to read it, as you say. Uh, and and it's not. I mean, I think a lot of people may not find this film enjoyable, but. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody who could say it. It's. It, I mean, it's surprising. It's engrossing. It is. It's fascinating, and it is incredibly well acted. Yeah, and it is, and it's one that will leave a mark. You'll think about this for a while. Oh yeah. Uh, what he's trying to say, and even if you can't quite feel confident that you figured it out, that's fine. It's still going to have an effect on you, and we loved it. That's the killing of a sacred deer. One more major release this week, the story of U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson from his young days in West Texas to the White House. Woody Harrelson stars as LBJ. A new leader has emerged. America has a Southern president. You don't waste any time, do you, Lyndon? Excuse me? Rather not have it than have it this way. Kennedy is a man of great ideas. Now the country needs a man who can deliver. There will be no compromise. This is about making President Kennedy's vision a reality. This will define your presidency. I can only hope. So this is Rob Reiner directed this movie, Mm -hmm. right? Spinal Tap, Princess Bride, Stand By Me. This is a guy who has made some incredibly important sort of generationally definitive films and, on the other hand, hasn't made a movie worth watching since the mid-90s. It's been a while. He's and, also made movies such as The Bucket List ugh. and uh, and So It Goes. Ugh. And uh, yeah, and this one doesn't really do a whole lot for his resume. No, it does not. So I want to start off by saying, though, that Woody Harrelson is great. and He's had a good year. Yeah, he has. You know what? The, here's the thing, though. 
I think Woody Harrelson is one of the most reliable and interesting character actors you're going to find. I agree. And I would not be surprised to have him land an Oscar, a, a Best Supporting Oscar nomination for War for the Planet of the Apes. That'd be I great. Think, I think he could definitely be in contention. But all around, he's he's been great all year. And, and like you say, most of the time he is. Yeah, almost always. And in a lot of the uh, scenes in this film, he shares the screen with Richard Jenkins, who may be the one on earth more reliable character <laughs> actor. He is. And when the two of them are on screen together, it's the whole film is mesmerizing. And the whole conflict underneath civil rights is mesmerizing. I mean, I think that there's, you know, on the, the rare occasion out of this film where you have the two of them, you you understand so much more about the historical time period, about everything that Johnson was up against and and about sort of the importance of his time in office. And the entire rest of the movie is an absolute waste of time. Mm. And it's funny because it's really a it's a very small window. You basically we open the window right around the time where he loses the presidential bid. And then it ends just as he is ushering the civil rights through the Senate floor just after the death of JFK. So it's a really actually fairly short amount of time. And well, usually that's a good thing for biopics. If you can focus more, that usually leads to better results. What I find interesting about that, though, is that. The exact same basic time period, and in some cases, overlapping scenes, yeah. right? We just saw in much better films, in Jackie last year, in Selma a couple of years and ago. Then just, uh, I think it's only been a few this, months, yeah. all the way with Brian Cranston on uh, HBO. Right. Yeah. So one of the problems that this film faces is comparison to far superior movies. Mm-hmm. And it's just not something that the rest of the cast or the writing are able to overcome because when it comes down to it, the thrust of this film is basically that LBJ is an unhappy, unpopular kid and the rich, good looking people in the White House won't let him in their clique. That is really what it comes down to. Poor LBJ. He just wants to be loved. Uh, You know, this is a guy who mired us in Vietnam. This is a guy who pushed civil rights, a Southerner who pushed civil rights finally through. And this is all we get. For him, yeah. as, a, as a memory, I don't think so. Well, you know what? It seems to me, it has the feel to me of a movie that's been sitting around for a little while and is just getting pushed through and one that's going to be forgotten about pretty quickly. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, and that's LBJ. And one more to talk about this week in limited release, but we want to mention it because we're big fans of the director and it's his 100th movie. The latest film from Takashi Miike. It's called Blade of the Immortal. If you are familiar at all with Takashi Miike's work, and if you're not, get get on top of it. He has a tendency to subvert expectation, to fill the screen with blood and carnage. But at the same time, so it's funny because a lot of his films are kind of a conflict between really formalism as a filmmaker and then just anarchy, chaos as a filmmaker. And what's interesting about this film, which is based on a manga of a samurai who can never die, is that it, it kind of takes the two themes of, of his entire body of work and puts them in one movie. So the samurai who can never die was an insider. He's a samurai and he's on the outs now. And then there's a he's kind of battling an outsider who wants in, which is in the form of another samurai. And in the middle of all this is a little girl, Rin. And she wants vengeance on the outsider who wants in for having killed her family. So this this immortal swordsman comes to her defense and kills a lot of people. In a Mickey movie? What? I know. 
the whole opening sequence, the whole prologue, which is shot in this glorious black and white, where you come to 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 learn how the samurai became immortal, is so incredibly impressive in the way that it's set, in the way that it's filmed, in the color, in the oh, it's so impressive. And so long and lengthy. And there are so many dead bodies by the time the prologue is done (laughs) that you're really like, wow, we're only like four minutes in. And it is a two and a half hour film. And you may very well suffer from battle fatigue before it's over, which is, I think, one of the few real drawbacks to the film. It is undoubtedly longer than it needs to be. And Mm -hmm. there are so many battle sequences, but they're incredibly well shot. They're incredibly well thought out. And the, the performances are great. It's funny where it needs to be funny. It's it's sort of frightening where it needs to be. The the movie beginning to end looks absolutely glorious. I'm not sure that it adds a great deal to, you know, his canon, to the idea of, of mangas. To I don't, There's not a lot new here, right? It's one samurai battling another samurai because of a sworn vengeance. I think we feel like we've seen that before. But everything Mike does is interesting and this is interesting and bloody and gorgeous and it's his 100th movie let that be a lesson to you lollygaggers while you're sleeping tonight he's going to crank out three more (laughs) but his latest is blade of the Immortals. so yeah there you go a busy week let us know what you think what do you think of the the humor in thor or maybe do you have a different meaning different interpretation of the killing of a sacred deer get at us on social media you can find us easiest way is on twitter that's mad wolf m-a-d-d-w-o-l-f also mad wolf columbus on Facebook and Instagram, and of course the main website where you can find the written reviews of all these films and some other fun stuff. Our other podcast included, which is just about horror movies called Fright Club. We'd love to have you check that out. You can find that all at madwolf.com. The Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and now sponsored by Marcus Theaters Crosswoods. Tickets for The Last Jedi on sale now. You think those tickets are going to be in demand? (laughs) So a couple things new this week on VOD, DVD, streaming, and neither one we recommend. No. The first is Halle Berry in Kidnap, and the second is Matthew McConaughey and Idris Elba in The Dark Tower. Kind of a no to, well, not kind of. Very definitely. A big no to both of those. So we look forward next week. A couple of big ones on the horizon. Daddy's Home 2. I don't know. The trailer looks funny. It does, doesn't it? Trailer looks funny. Add Mel Gibson and John Lithgow to the group. And also the remake of Murder on the Orient Express. Curious. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm intrigued. Star-studded. So we'll talk about those next weekend. Hope you can join us then. Until next week, I'm George Wolf. I'm Holt Madden. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.